I don't always tell you when I title sermons. I usually do just because I, as you've picked up, keep uh, records and notes, the things that I preach on. And uh, originally I entitled this uh, Bethlehem because that's what we're going to talk about today. But then I struck that out this morning and I changed it and I put in of no importance. Of no importance. And I think you'll see why that is shortly. Uh, this is yet again, I, I said a few weeks ago, I wanted to look at some of the Old Testament prophecies about Christ and, and look at those. We began by looking in Isaiah, which is where there's lots of prophecies. And we preached on, uh, for unto us, a son is given. And the next week we talked about the importance of the virgin birth, why that was important, and the idea that God is both fully God and fully man because of that. And then last week we talked about the root of Jesse. We talked about the importance of uh, Christ and, and who uh, his legacy is and how God had promised to have a king uh, seated on David's throne eternally. And of course, we know that that is Jesus Christ. And Jesse is David's father, in case you weren't here uh, last week to pick up on that. And today I want to talk about Bethlehem. And to do that, like we did the last few Sundays, I want to set a little bit of background, a little bit of context for this little tiny town called Bethlehem. We see it referred to sometimes as the city of David. So that would be Bethlehem, the city of David. It's the same thing. We'll talk about a few of its names. Um, and that is because King David uh, is from there, uh, as we have talked about already. Sometimes you'll see it referred to as Bethlehem of Judea. Judea is the uh, southern part of Israel. And that's important because Bethlehem, there's actually another Bethlehem that's in the northern part of the kingdom. And so oftentimes you see this delineation, Bethlehem of Judea, or Bethlehem, the city of David, or some of its other names, probably to differentiate which Bethlehem we're talking about. Other times, especially in the Old Testament, you'll see it referred to as Ephrath, or Ephronite, I believe. I'm not good at these things. Um, this is likely the Canaanite word for this city. Right? You remember the Canaanites were living in this area uh, when God gave them uh, the land of Israel, and so it's very likely that Ephrath, or Ephronite, was the Canaanite word that was used um, for this area. Interestingly enough, it also means, or it means fruitful, right? It means fruitful. And the word Bethlehem itself, probably more of the Hebrew word for this city, obviously, means um, uh, house of bread, house of bread. Uh, it was about five miles south of Jerusalem and kind of in a high hilly country, not like really high, but high up in the hilly Area had really good climate, had really good uh, fields for growing wheat and fruit and vineyards and things like this. So again, this goes back to this idea: this was part of an area of the country that probably had lots of bread, lots of fruit, lots of produce uh, coming from it because of where it was uh, located. So that's kind of where it's at historically. There's a lot of interesting things that have occurred in Bethlehem. Uh, let me begin with uh, Genesis. It's really where we get our first men mention of Bethlehem. Genesis chapter 35. And I'm going to read a bit of scripture today um, multiple times. So uh, Genesis chapter 35. I think I'm going to begin with verse uh, 16. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was a little way come to Ephrath. Now, again, you remember, that's another word for the same city, Bethlehem. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. 
And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benomine, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Adar. We've talked about Adar before, and I won't spend too much time on it today. But I just want to point out a couple of interesting things in this passage. One, we see here the discussion of Bethlehem. We see both names that it's used for. We see that Rachel was buried somewhere right around Bethlehem. And so we see an interesting uh, thing that goes on here. But also there's two names given. One means son of sorrow. The other means son of my right hand. And you can go back and see Jesus in this as well because he is both the son of sorrow and the one who sits on the throne. So we see that mentioned there. We move forward uh, a few chapters. I'll just, uh, summarize a few other stories here. In First Chronicles um, chapter 2. We see that Caleb's family, remember Caleb from the scriptures, Caleb's, Caleb's family settled in uh, Bethlehem when they came in and took over. And in fact, at some point, um, his grandson is called the father of Bethlehem. In Judges chapter 17, we see a very peculiar story about uh, Micah. Now, this is not the prophet Micah that we're going to read about in a, in a little bit, but this is another Micah in the Bible. And uh, Micah is interested in worshiping God, but really goes about it the wrong way. And uh, there's two chapters that deal with him and Judges, but that story also all occurs within Bethlehem. And he finds a priest and, and so on and so forth. We see another disturbing story come out of Bethlehem. Judges 19 through 20, we see a uh, Levite who has a concubine. And if you recall, this is the very tragic story. They're in Bethlehem, which is where she's from. And they delay for too many days to depart. And then when they do, they stay in a city outside of Jerusalem. And this is where... Uh, she is murdered, and the uh, Levite sends out a message to all of Israel saying this is a horrible thing that's happened, and they come and nearly destroy the tribe of Benjamin. So we see that occurring near Bethlehem as well. On a little bit of happier note, we see in Ruth, uh, Naomi returned home after a famine, and home was Bethlehem. She'd left for a time uh, during the famine. Um, her sons died. She comes uh, back, and she brings her daughter with her. Um, which is um, Ruth, and Ruth meets Boaz. Boaz is from Bethlehem, and she was probably gleaning in the field, one of the fields nearby Bethlehem. Of course, just because it's fun to imagine these things, it makes you wonder, was she gleaning in the same field where the angels came to tell the shepherds a few years later? All this is occurring in this little tiny town. Uh, as I mentioned, Boaz is from there. They were married, their son Obed, his son Jesse, his son David, and so forth. So we see this occurring there as well. Another account I'd like to read a little bit of is 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. You'll recall, again, knowing your Bible history, and I promise we'll conclude with the history lesson here in just a minute and get to the preaching. That Saul was made king. It wasn't God's idea. God's idea was for him to be their king. But the people wanted a king because they wanted to be like everyone else. But God was displeased with Saul. And so he sent Samuel to anoint a new king. First Samuel chapter 16, I'll, I'll pick up and read here. It says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long 
Wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thy horn with oil, and go, and I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what you will do. And thou shalt anoint unto him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town um, trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sacrificed, I'm sorry, and he um, sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not in his countenance, nor in his height or his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made um, Shammah to pass by, and the Lord neither had chosen this. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all the children? And he said, There is remains the youngest. And behold, he keeps the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down until he comes hither. And he sent him and brought him in. Now he was a ready uh, man and beautiful countenance and goodly to look at. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And we'll end there for now. A couple of interesting things again to point out. You wonder again, are these the same fields? The same fields just outside of a little town. We find David minding his own business, and the Lord calls him to his service. So some beautiful things that are going on here. A couple other quick uh, historical things here. We see in 2 Samuel that uh, Bethlehem is the hometown of a couple or two of David's mighty men that are listed. We also see that when the, uh, some of those mighty men broke through uh, the Philistines to get the water from the well that David wanted to drink from, it was also from his hometown in Bethlehem. And so we see that there is some uh, historical, a lot of historical events that happened around this city of David. And probably during David's reign, this city rose to some prominence, him being his hometown. We see that even with our own presidents today, don't we? That lots of times in president's hometown, we then go and build a library or make some, uh, something special out of it. So there was probably some prominence that arose there. But during the division and the captivity of Israel, it's very likely this town fell into disrepair. Regardless, despite all the historical things that happened here, we do know that Bethlehem was not important. It just wasn't important. Very, very small. In fact, in Joshua, there's a listing of 96 towns in the promised land that God describes. Bethlehem's not listed. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah lists about 17 cities that are around Jerusalem that are important. He doesn't list Bethlehem. And what we know is that Bethlehem just wasn't really important. In fact, Micah 5.2, one uh, translation says, Bethlehem was too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, we don't even list it. It's inconsequential. It is of no importance. So, 
Why would God choose a little tiny city that no one really cares about, that isn't important, to bring his son? I'm going to answer that by reading 1 Corinthians 1.27. It says, But God has selected the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has selected the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God has selected the insignificant things of the world and the things that are despised and treated with contempt, even things that are nothing, so that he might reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one may be able to boast in the presence of God. You see, the reality is we can look at things that are really important. We can think, well, God surely would have sent his son to be born in his city, which is Jerusalem. We can think about all the ways that this should have happened. And I've mentioned over the last few weeks, none of this, if I was to sit down and come up with a plan for how to do this, would have ever entered my mind. But God uses the weak things, the things that don't make any sense, the things that are of no importance and no consequence to do his will in the world. Over and over and over again, we see God using things that are not important to fulfill his will. Now, here's where I want to spend just a few minutes, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to offend you. Everybody ready? Do you know what else is not important? You are not important. Think about it. Now, all your lives, you've been told the opposite, haven't you? All of our lives, we've been told we're special. All of our lives, we've been told you can be anything you want to be, and it's all about self-esteem. But the reality is, you are not important. I am not important. There have been billions of people who have been born and died in this world. How many of them do you know? How many of them were important? Will I be remembered in history? No. You're not important. Not important in this country. I'm not important in this state. I'm not important in this county. And let's go ahead and take a little bit further. I'm not really important in this church. If you think about it, How many pastors can you name from this church? A few. Do you know the one that started it? The one that came after that? Or the next or the next? See, we forget, don't we? Because we're really not that important. We think, surely, Brother Ben, you're important to your family, right? I think about family. I think about my kids and me, my parents. My grandparents, ooh, great-grandparents. See, now we're starting to forget, right? What about our great-great-grandparents? You know anything about them? Some of us may not even know their names or their occupations. And all of a sudden, we begin to realize that society has been lying to us for a long time. We're really not important. And almost nothing we do really, really matters. But... You are important to one person, and that's God. 
You see, you can really realize that we have almost no value, that billions of people, and I'm not exaggerating, have lived and died. All types of people have done really good things and really bad things and all manner of things in between. All throughout history, we have seen people come and people go, and almost none of them are actually really important. And we remember almost none of them. And really, when you stop and think about it, will my great-great-grandchildren remember or talk about who I am? The answer is no. But God knows me because God knows who I am and God sent his son to die for me. And so the reality is I'm important to what? To God. God loves me. God sent his only son to this know-nothing little town, to people who no one really knew. Joseph and Mary were not anything special. We've already talked about this. But God used them and God used these uh, random people Um, shepherds who were nearby and God used the wise men and God used everything that doesn't make any sense. The things that no one would ever remember if it wasn't written down and so important to fulfill his will and his purpose. And every single one of them was obedient to God. And so as we go about our lives, trying to be important, trying to think that we're going to accomplish something, let us remember we don't really matter except to God who made us. And because we have value in God's sight, what does that mean we have value to each other? Absolutely. Because God made us. God made us in his image. He created us. And he loves us. Remember the passage I read to the children this morning? God knows the hairs of your head. Luke 12, 7. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so when we go through this life and we try and find uh, value and reason for living, when we wonder what it is that's worth anything, we have good days and bad days. Let us always remember the value that we have, the importance that we have, is that God loved us and he loved us first. We didn't choose God. I didn't love him first. I came into this world a sinner. I have continued to be a sinner. And the only reason that I am saved to this day is because God looked down on me and loved me and chose me and called me by name. And I was obedient to respond, to ask for forgiveness and to put my faith in him. And I am valuable because he loves me. But in and of itself, no one cares. In and of my own self, I can write books, which I have. I can publish all kinds of things. I can do everything that I want to do. And at the end of the day, what happens to it? Nothing. Who will remember me? No one. Give it a few years and I'll be forgotten like everybody else for thousands of years down through history. Except what? Except for God. Who knew you when you were created who knows the number of hairs on your head and is what? Wanting you to come be with him. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Ever put your name in there? For God so loved been that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever or maybe I should say that Ben 
believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. We measure ourselves against each other. We measure ourselves against ourselves. And we're going to come up wanting every time because we are insignificant, except that God loves us. And this one thing, this idea, I didn't plan on talking about this. This one idea that we have value in God's sight and God's image has radically changed the world. If you think about why we do certain things that we do in our culture, why we want to take care of other people, why we think that people have value, it doesn't really make any sense otherwise, does it? What have we gone from a world where we just take from each other to take whatever we want to please ourselves, this world of chaos to do whatever we want to, and how have we come to a point where we say, no, you have value no matter what you look like. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, you have value. Why? Because we have value in God's sight. And this is a Christian, Judeo-Christian idea that has been passed down that we look at each other and say, no, you have value and you have worth and as much as you are in God's image. And so we treat each other with that value, with that worth, and with that dignity. Why? Because God demands it, because God made us, and we are a part of God in that we reflect a portion of him, and we have value. And so the message today that I really want to get very clearly across, and I'm probably isn't working very well, is the idea that we can look at ourselves and we can try and measure ourselves and think about all the value and worth we have. Or you may be sitting here today thinking, well, I don't have any value. I can't contribute to anything. I, I don't do this and I fail at this and I fail at this and I have this problem and I'm completely worthless. And if we're honest today, many, 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 many people in our culture feel that way. They feel like they don't have any value. They don't have any worth. And you know what? You are right, except for what? Jesus Christ and his saving of you. And in that, because God created you, you have tremendous value and tremendous worth. And if you alone were the only one who needed saving, I believe God would have sent his son and he would have died on the cross just for you. But the reality is that we all need it. The reality is God knew from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, that we would need saving. And God prepared a plan to send his son in the most unusual way to a worthless city, to parents who were not prominent or wealthy, to be born not in a nice house, to have smelly shepherds come, to have foreigners come and give him gifts. To have a famous king try and murder him. To live a life for 30 years, preparing him, teaching him obedience. To then walk all over the country, teaching and healing and preaching about himself. To be betrayed by his best friends. To be illegally tried. To be beaten half to death. To be hung on a cross. To have the presence of his father turn away from him to bear the weight of the sins of the entire world just for you. And so if you feel like you have no value and no worth, 
Know that you do because God knows your name. God knows everything about you. And our job is to be obedient to him. Just like everybody in the scriptures was. As insignificant as we are, God still loves us. As insignificant as we are, God still wants to use us. And the reality is, again, I'll diverge for just a moment here. I think I'm right. No one's going to remember me as pastor of this small church in 40, 50 years. But you know what we'll live on? The Spirit of God moving among us. Because there have been and will be people, and I'll, I mean this sincerely, I'm not giving myself a hard time, I know you all pick anyone to do that, who despite my best efforts have been saved in this church, who will continue on, who will share the gospel with others, who will share the gospel with others, and by that we see our value, that we are created in the image of God, and we share the gospel and are obedient to do what God has told us to do, and that is the legacy that goes on and on and on and on until Christ comes back and it's over. And we all will get to be with him. And so let us look to each other and understand that our value is high because we are God's. And the only thing that lasts is what we do for him. I preached a number of years ago on a little poem that my grandmother used to say. Only when life will soon be past and only what's done for Christ will last. The poem's a lot longer than that, but that's what she would repeat. And again, when I talk about no consequence, one of the few things I remember her saying at this point, she died when I was eight or nine. But I know she loved the Lord. I know she raised a father well, who raised a son, hopefully well, who's trying to raise more sons or a son, hopefully well, and a daughter. And someday, hopefully, they'll raise their kids well. And we see how this obedience gets passed down. God will use us, but not because we're so strong and so mighty. God will use us not because we're well-known. God will use us because we are insignificant. God will use us because we are significant to him. Even if we are too little to be named among the historians, God will use us. Even if we are too weak to be of any value, God will use us. And he will use us to fulfill his purpose on earth. He's been doing it since the beginning. And he'll do it toward the end. And so my challenge to us today, for everyone listening... Do you think of yourself more highly than you ought to? But that goes both ways, doesn't it? Because it almost sounds like I've been contradictory today. Maybe in some ways I have been. Because we can think more highly of ourselves than we ought to from a worldly perspective. 
But I would dare say that many, many, many of us do not think highly of ourselves, even though we're a child of the King. Even though we know the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, when we consider where we are putting our faith and our hope and our strength, let us not put it in ourselves. Because in reality, we're really not worth much, at least while we're here. But the other side of that coin is we are of tremendous value to God. And so let us put our effort and our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. Let us look to other people when we go to the store, when we're at work, when we're at school, whenever we're out and we look at other people. Let us see God in them. Let us look past their titles, past how they look, past even how they act, and let us see God in them. There is the only value we have that we are created in His image. And that He came to be born, to die for us. Pray with me. Lord, I thank You for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you saw fit to come to us. Lord, I'm thankful that you don't use what we would look at as powerful or important. You don't move in ways that always make sense to us. But Lord, you do move among us. You are here. You are real. You love us. You sent your son as a baby, to grow, to live, to be obedient, to teach and preach your word and to die for us and to be resurrected. Lord, we get this mixed up so many times. We, it's so easy to think that we're somehow important in this life and the reality is we will not be remembered. But we are important to you. So important that you sent your son to die for me. Lord, I ask that you would speak deeply into our lives this week. Lord, as we prepare next Sunday to celebrate your birth, Lord, may we spend the week thinking about our value to you. Lord, thinking that even though the world will forget us and never remember us, Lord, you know us. You knew us before we were born. You know us now and you'll know us for eternity after. Lord, my prayer is that all of us would come to a knowing knowledge of you. Lord, that you would draw us to you, that that you would remind us of how much you love us. Lord, that you died for us, that we would be brought to a point that we put our faith and our trust in you so that we can have this relationship restored so that we can be part of you, so that we can know you and that you can know us fully. Lord, I know you want all of us to know you. Lord, your son said as much to be lifted up and draw all men unto God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would put our hearts and our minds in the right place. Lord, that you would remind us of the things that are of no consequence, that have tremendous value and we're obedient to you. Lord, I thank you for the blessings you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen.